Welcome to Pragmatic. Pragmatic is a weekly discussion show contemplating the practical application of technology. Exploring the real-world trade-offs, we look at how great ideas are transformed into products and services that can change our lives. Nothing is as simple as it seems. This episode is sponsored by ManyTrix, makers of helpful apps for the Mac. Visit manytricks.com slash pragmatic for more information about their apps Butler, Chemo, Leech, Usher, Witch, Desktop Curtain, TimeSync, NameAngler, and Moom. If you visit that URL, you can use the code PRAGMATIC25, that's pragmatic the word and then 25 the numbers in the shopping cart to save 25% on any many tricks product. We'll talk more about them during the show. I'm your host John Chigi and I'm joined today by my guest host David Smith. How are you doing David? Hello and thank you for having me. It's, it's great to be here. Cool. Now thanks for coming on. Um, greatly appreciated. Before we get uh, stuck in real quickly, I just want to quickly thank uh, Mick Travis for the lovely review on iTunes. Uh, remember, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating or even a review if you're so feeling so inclined. Uh, again, would really appreciate it. So today, um, it's something that, that's been on my mind for a long time. And a lot of people who are listening to the show uh, have a blog or have had a blog or are considering having a um, doing a blog and I think that it's the best angle to sort of cover this from from the point of view of most people's use cases and trying to keep in line with the show uh, is one of those things is uh, understanding if I'm going to build a site where does my site belong do I do I have it on my own server do I have do I have a server up in in uh, and I hate calling it the cloud but the cloud um, out there on the internet and um if so, do I get a dedicated server? Do I do a virtual server? Or do I just, to hell with all that, go with shared hosting or even to hell with that and go with a fully hosted solution, something like, well, I don't know, like Blogger or Squarespace or whatever. And I was, uh, I was glad when you picked this topic because uh, this is something that I know that you've had a lot of, uh, a lot of experience with. Yes, though, yes, I've done some amount of it on the blogging side, and I've done a whole lot more of it just in the general experience with trying to find the right level of abstraction to build your things on, um, whether that's a blog or whether that's an actual, you know, a database or a web service or things, you know, any kind of, anything that's going to involve a computer that has a persistent connection to the internet. Like, there's a lot of questions that you have to kind of navigate and spend a lot of time thinking all that through. Yeah, and I think we were talking just briefly before the show about uh, the quantity. How many servers are you uh, currently administering? It's somewhere in the ballpark of probably between 20 and 30. Wow. Um, it, it, var it varies bed to based on various things in terms of load. Just, the nice thing about modern hosting is that you can very easily spin up and spin down servers as you need to, but it's usually somewhere in that kind of ballpark between my various apps and services and my site and my podcast and all these different things just you just end up accumulating all these different surfers with all these different for all these different needs and purposes so it's something that i've for, for, though i don't really have any actual training in this it's just the kind of thing that i've just learned over time okay cool yeah well um the funny thing is yeah you, know, you say that it's something that you sort of learned over time the number of people that um I don't know, uh, that I've talked to that have, have learned how to do this stuff and become very, very good at it are the ones that have learned that way. And the formal training side, um, yeah, uh, it just doesn't seem to be as common, which is, that's just been my experience. But in any case, 
Yeah. Well, and I think there's a, an element of it that, and I mean, maybe we'll probably deal to deal with this a little bit when we get into like understanding the various levels of abstraction that you can be hosting your things on. But a lot of it's just going to come down to your level of comfort. Sure. And over time, just the, my, by, my nature, what I end up inevitably doing is I'll, you start with something that's very high level. You start with something that's very, has, you know, you're, it's like you're playing with, what is it, Quattro, the giant Legos, and then you work after a while you get bored playing with those and you, you decide you want the duplos like the next smallest or whatever it is and you start wanting to do something that you can't do with 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 a high level solution and so you end up having to keep working your way down and down and down or you start challenging more and you start approaching and working on more and more interesting and challenging problems and so you end up like well i just have to do this thing because i'm running into some kind of constraint you know performance capability etc just so, and every every time you work your way down, you just learn something new, and so I think that's just sort of my path anyway. It's just been over time you just kind of have to keep working your way down, and at this point, I've gone all the way to the bottom, I suppose, and or at least to the point where the things that uh, the decisions that I'm worrying about are as low level as you could reasonably go beyond running my own data center or something like that. You know, I'm still not. I'm not worrying about that side of things, mm -hmm. but as far as you can go on the actual, you know, an actual server, I've probably gone all the way down to the bottom. So it's so, just kind of the experience that you run into after doing this for a long time. So the next step is the David Smith hosting service with uh, I, server farm and everything in the backyard. And I gosh, I, I suppose <laughs> I'm, 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 that's one thing that I, 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 my suspicion is this is where I will stop, where I'm, you know, actually on, you know, fully dedicated machines on you know sort of bare metal in a data center i don't have to know physically where that is and physically you know the number of redundant power supplies that it's connected to and the, you know what how much diesel is in the diesel tank outside <laughs> of the data center and yes. all those types of things at least that i'm happy to just abstract that off and pay someone else to worry about that but cool. in terms of everything else on the actual from the machine from the machine up is is fair game at this point Cool. Awesome. Okay. Well, um, I'd like to sort of, it's interesting the way that you've described that. I'm actually planning to cover this sort of back to front. <laughs> so, um, uh, which is, we'll, we'll start at the, um, what, what seems like the simplest. And I guess the reason I want to cover it in the reverse order is because uh, the way I see it is it's been an evolution of complex to simple. Uh, so, if from the very beginning, you had no choice. You had a physical machine. And you know, as things have abstracted away to make things easier, uh, that has given people more options. So, whereas there's now there's always been that there's always been the, the possibility of being able to go down to the the level of dealing with a physical machine and that level of abstraction, uh, you don't have to worry about abstracting away things like a, a virtual server and, and so on. So, I think it kind of makes sense to sort of start from that point and then, but oddly, it sort of sounds back to front based on the way you just described it. So. Okay. It's the same thing. Yeah, 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 same thing. Okay, cool. So, pure and simple, and this is going to sound like maybe even a ridiculous place to start, but I'm going to start here anyway, and that is server versus a computer. And this is one of the things that when I first uh, learned about computers, I sort of thought to myself, oh, what's a server? Is that like a, is this like a special, special computer? And and the funny thing is that, um, you know, as uh, it may or may not be obvious, but I mean, a server computer is designed purely for one purpose, and that is to to serve data out to other computers. 
And as a result, it has a different set of design optimizations. So you've got a, a desktop computer, it's going to have expansion slots in it. It's going to have a, like if it's a mini tower, of course, I'm talking about PCs more so than Macs at this point because you know, Macs are like all in one machines. But you know, the idea is you know, you've got a, a keyboard, a mouse a, and, and a monitor and they sit separate to the machine usually. And you know, that's a different set of optimizations. It's got a, a relatively inexpensive power supply. It's got relatively inexpensive components like it might have relatively cheap hard drives in it. Yeah, you know, nothing particularly flash. But when you're dealing with a server, you want something that's serving, you know, dozens, hundreds, thousands of people. You want to have something that's got a lot of redundancy in it. So you want to have something that's got redundant power supplies because power supplies statistically are the most uh, likely component uh, to fail. And you're going to want to have uh, high reliability hard drives because these hard drives can be spinning constantly. So you'll hear the, the term server grade, so like server grade hard drives, and they'll, they'll be designed to spin you know, for five, 10 years. That's assuming, of course, they're still using that. If you're going to SSDs, that's, you know, which is starting to happen more often, you know, then that's a different discussion. And we've talked about that in the previous episode. So the point is that when you're going to a server machine, it's going to cost you more because it's going to be designed to be much more reliable much more solid although technically there's absolutely nothing stopping you from running server applications on a standard desktop computer if you really wanted to uh, there's as far as i'm aware nothing stopping you so i mean apart from common sense perhaps but sure yeah. and, and it's probably i think that's something that i've noticed in my conversations with just with just generally with people where they're trying to understand like how the internet works mm. is it's, i think it's an important thing to make sure that it's like there is no difference like practically between a computer that's a server and a computer that's a desktop computer in terms of the things that you know and understand about that are applied to that just as well. The things that are different is that a server is just the way it's set up and connected to the internet and connected to the world is just different because it's designed to be on all the time and designed to be connected all the time. Mm-hmm. It's designed to have a much longer lifespan and to have a diff- have a different, like you said, just different design constraints on it. But you know, you could just as easily, I mean, this is sort of like Mac mini Colo or people like that, where they just take Mac minis and hook them up as servers. It's like, there's nothing different about that computer. It's just the way that it's being used. Um, that's different. Aren't they submerged in oil? <laughs> no, I think that's somewhere else. But yes. Oh, sorry. Um, I just remember that from an ad on five by five. But anyway, yeah. Amazing the things that stick with you, but yeah, absolutely right. And and this is the this is the one of those little things that I just thought, you know what? Maybe it's silly, maybe it's not. I'll just just cover that just from the beginning, no, good. just so it's clear. So okay, everyone thinks to themselves, hey, I'd love to run my own server. I don't know why, but let's just do it. Okay, sure. So where do you start? And back in the beginning, in like the beginning, if you had a server serving out data, you would run it up on your own computer at home and you would connect into the internet. And sometimes that, that, that connection most of the time was not permanent. You would dial up, connect, and then your computer would be on the internet and then you could serve data from it. So uh, the problem, of course, with that, if you, if you then you know, progress a little forward in time and say, I've got a permanently on connection, uh, the problem has become not so much the power of the computer, more so the upload bandwidth seems to be the limiting factor. But it's not just the upload bandwidth, it's also the hassle because you've got to make sure that if you're serving all of these people, uh, you want to make sure that your computer's running all the time. Okay, even if it is a cheaper computer, at least have a UPS on it. So, uh, sorry, an uninterruptible power supply. And I'm sure most people know what that is, but just in case, that's just, um, there's a battery in a box and it's got a power converter in it. And essentially when the mains goes offline, um, the battery continues to power your computer for a period of time till the battery runs flat. Uh, 
And then when the power comes back on again, it automatically you know, switches back to the main supply and starts charging the battery ready for the next use. Of course, you scale that up with a diesel generator you mentioned before, um, but uh, you know, most people in their houses don't have diesel generators, but um, we'll get to that later. Yes, they definitely do on larger scales. So that's sort of that's sort of like where you would where, where you you would traditionally would start for some people anyway. Now I'm not even saying that that was the most common instance, but you know that is certainly where you could start. There's nothing stopping you from doing that if you really want to do that. So you could have your own computer on your desk at home acting as a server. But as soon as it starts to get a decent amount of upload bandwidth, you're kind of screwed really because yeah, you know, most home internet connections don't have a high upload bandwidth. And frankly, yeah, well, okay, mine certainly doesn't. Mine's horrible. It's like ADSL 1, 384 kilobit per second up. It's atrocious. It's beyond atrocious. But never mind that. So anyhow, okay. So the next question is, what do you do? How do you then take that to the next level? And the obvious way is to put that out somewhere else on the internet. Somewhere that does have a massive, fat, wide bus for the uploading data in other words so everyone else to download because you know it's all perspective right so i'm an uploader yeah. you're a downloader all that sort of rubbish so what they would do is they would host it in their premises but they would have much much bigger you know connections to the air like uh like t1s e1s depending on whether what, what country you're in you know or different there's a whole bunch of different terminologies i don't want to go into all of that not this episode anyway and all of that extra bandwidth means that they can serve out a lot more people more so than you can and and that became essentially the winning model because it was more cost effective you would get a much better result you get higher uptime and the other beauty of it is of course you then wipe your hands of all of that drama of of taking care of the physical hardware because the other issue of course uh, at home is that you know you don't have a, a temperature controlled environment in your house or a humidity controlled environment and that's obviously not good for the longevity of your hardware because you want to have that in a temperature controlled environment because that reduces the thermal cycling because thermal cycling is drives a wear out mechanism on the hardware as things expand and contract at differential rates. And then you've got obviously the humidity as well. The humidity will, will drive uh, corrosion or lack of humidity will, will prevent some corrosion. So honestly, those, those two big failure um, mechanisms, you take that out, out of the equation by putting your computers in a temperature and humidity controlled environment. And a host who's hosting this on, on the internet, wherever it might be, you know, they can take care of that for you at scale and you simply pay them a nominal fee for that privilege. So that level of abstraction is pretty much the minimum and it's pretty much the standard and it's pretty much what everyone does. And I think that's more or less where you said you've sort of stopped with your Unless you're yes. going to set up your yeah. <laughs> server farm no, in the backyard, yeah. yeah. And, and because the reality is, at its simplest, that's that, at its simplest, that's what you, you you're going to need at least that. And everything we're going to talk to uh, talk about from here on is going to be built on top of that. Yes. Because um, at its core, it is just going to be a computer in a rack, and like they're rack mounted so that they're easy to manage. And you know, there's if you've ever seen pictures of a data center, that's all it is. Like there's just these cabinets and cabinets of computers that are built and designed to make things very efficient to operate and manage. That if a hard drive goes, it's very easy to know where that is and to know how to replace it. If, if uh, one of your, one of you know, that rather than just having one network connection, they'll have multiple redundant network, network connections with different providers in different places and all these types of things that they've just taken care of. So that at its core, the, you know, this, the computer that you were, that you're trying to run has power and internet all the time in a very consistent, a managed way. And at its core, that's really all a data center's job is, is to provide 
power an internet to your computer and keep it cool, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, and beyond that, you're building everything else on top of that infrastructure that they're just then providing for you. Absolutely. And it's, it's something that you brought up there that I, I didn't have originally down to talk about, but just really quickly in case anyone um, is not aware of this. Server machines, I talked before about the refinement of their hardware, and you mentioned rack mount and ease of replacement of, of devices. So once, um, once you're in that server design market, what you want to do is you want to have redundant power supplies. So uh, as I mentioned, and the redundant power supplies themselves on the good servers are hot swappable. So you can literally unscrew them, pull them out of the back and put a new one in and slide it in without having to turn the machine off because obviously yeah. that's downtime. You don't you want to try to avoid downtime, right? Yep. Yeah, and the next most common thing to fail is, of course, your hard drive. You're spinning hard drives usually. And yeah, so what they'll have on most services, they'll, they'll have, um, uh, I think the, the current one is uh, serial, um, serial, uh, S, oh, serial attached storage, SAS, uh, SCSI attached. Oh. Help me out here, Dave. SCSI attached storage, serial. S... SATA? Is that what you're talking no, about? No, 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 no. It's SAS. SAS. Anyway, um, and I, this is what happens when I when I go off on a tangent without just brushing up. <laughs> but um, the last server I set up a few years ago, um, we were using some SAS drives, uh, 120 gig, and we had uh, six of them in a RAID configuration. I think it was RAID 5. Or was it RAID 10? I forget which. Anyway. It'll, um, be, one, it'll be one of those two. It'll be, one it'll of be those... RAID 5 or RAID, RAID 10, <laughs> yeah. depending on what you're characteristics you need are yeah that's probably another show yeah that's an yeah that's another show exactly so we've got to be careful so um yeah the idea is of course that if any one of those fails that you can again hot swappable you can literally remove it from the front panel and uh replace it and put a new one in and it will do all of the cloning and mirroring and everything there'll be a performance hit obviously while it does that but essentially there is no downtime it's all managed by the server's firmware and it just does its job and ticks along nicely and there'll yeah. be an indicator light on the front that shows you, like you said, this one's failed. So, you know, straight away which one to go to. Because there's racks and racks of these things. And that's the next thing to mention is, what is rack mount? Well, um, in during the Second World War, I think it was the Second World War, maybe the First World War, um, America decided to go with uh, the 19-inch rack standard. And the 19-inch rack uh, standard sort of became uh, more or less an international thing because, well, America was sort of, you know, involved in the war in different parts of the world and, and you know, a lot of people were using their gear and for interoperability purposes it was great to have a 19 inch rack and you could simply fill it up with whatever equipment you wanted and it simply just bolts onto the front using cage nuts and cage and, uh, and cage rails and so on um, and they call these slots in the front um, you know cage holes and so on and a uh, little, little known fact about my uh, my career is that my first um, paid job out of university out after university, uh, was doing some mechanical design <laughs> on a, as an electrical engineer. I was doing mechanical design, but never mind that. And uh, did that for about six months. And uh, that was designing 19-inch racks for um, uh, switch mode power supplies and uh, uh, and basically telco, telecom, telecommunications company uh, uninterruptible power supplies. These things are huge, you know, like uh, 30 feet long uh, UPS systems. They're huge things. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, that was interesting. So, there you go. I, I, I know way more about cage nuts and cage rails than I than any human should but there you have it anyway okay bit of a digression there but that's okay so <sighs> physical hardware so um and uh, you touched on this briefly uh, is of course they have more access to different bandwidth uh, different uh, internet connections and hence you have much more bandwidth available to you and the way that the hosts that will charge and they'll charge either a flat monthly fee usually 
um, irrespective of the bandwidth. Others will charge based solely on the bandwidth that you use. Sometimes it's a mixture of both. Like there's a minimum flat fee. And then if you go way over on your bandwidth, they'll charge you additional for that. Obviously, it varies from host to host and it depends on the content that you're that you're hosting and all that stuff. So rather than get into a comparison of the different, uh, the different um, kinds of hosts out there, uh, I encourage you to do your own research and uh, and there's uh, there's a lot of options. So um, although maybe it's just a quick ask, uh, do you have any uh, preferences? I'm currently using um, DigitalOcean, by the way, um, for my site. If you've got 20 to 30, I'm imagining you've got that spread across a, a bunch of different ones, perhaps? Sure. So I have my physical, I have a few dedicated hosts for, uh, for Feed Wrangler, my RSS service where I needed just some very specialty performance. And so I use those at uh, SoftLayer, which is a dedicated hosting environment. So it's like physical servers that are just running my stuff. Um, and then I split the rest of my stuff up. At, I have a couple at DigitalOcean and I have a lot at Linode, um, which is the, probably the biggest provider of, like the majority of my servers are there. I just, I've been using them for years and I, they seem to work pretty well for me. Yeah, I think Marco's using them also for Overcast at the moment. It's a quite, uh, Linode's quite popular at the moment. So, cool. All right. Okay. So, with the advent of multi-core CPUs, I think more than any more than any other uh, advent of technology um, in the computing space has dri has driven large-scale virtualization. And prior to that, one physical machine was one server, and that was it. Nice and simple. However, when Intel, I think it was Intel that really led the charge on this. When I started to put multiple CPUs in the one, the one die, so that was uh, with the Core Duo, which was you know kind of anyway another topic. But okay, the point is multi-core CPUs. All right, and I think actually they start out on the server line, if, uh, if I remember correctly. Um, anyway, anyway, point is that once you go to multi-core CPUs, you can start virtualizing a lot easier and. Virtualizing software from uh, VMware, for example, there's all sorts of different ones, but I know VMware is quite popular. I and not, I don't just mean Fusion; I mean it's a cross-platform. So, uh, so VMware can virtualize on. Uh, I think it's uh, it also runs on. I think they've got a Linux version as well as a Windows version. So they've got different options for you. And what that allows you to do is you can dedicate one or more CPUs on your server to its own virtual server and what it does essentially is it fires up as though it was a its own standalone machine, even though physically it's sitting on one piece of hardware. So if you've got a, a server that's got 12 cores or 16 cores or something crazy, uh, or more even, then you can then split that up into multiple CPUs serving multiple uh, machines, or virtual machines, as it were. And that sort of leads to the concept of a virtual private server, which instead of having a dedicated physical piece of hardware that you alone uh, allocated, you can now essentially get a slice of a physical machine. And it sort of sounds a bit odd at, when you when you first hear that idea, but what that the why that's an advantage is that that drives costs down, because it means that now the hosts who previously had to pay for the physical space for a single piece of hardware, a single hardware server, can now get you know, a dozen people on that same piece of hardware or or more even. So it also gives other people options and they can say, okay, well, you know, I want uh, a single core on mine and a certain amount of RAM allocated to my virtual private server or I'm going to pay a bit more. 
and I'm going to go and get two cores or four cores and I'm going to have more RAM. And it all can be configured essentially, you know, on the fly. You don't you don't have to go and call them and say, oh, I want to set this up. I want to do this and that. Uh, it's all usually pretty configurable. So, for example, in the case of DigitalOcean, I can I, I can dial up, you know, an extra gig of RAM uh, with more more hard drive space. And I keep saying hard drive. They run SSDs, but anyway. Um, and I can do that all through the web interface and it's all very straightforward. So it's really quite amazing to me anyway, how far it's come. And uh, I remember listening to, to Marco recently talking about this, about how far it's come back from when he started Instapaper to where he is now with Overcast and all of the server-side options you've got now. It's, it really is quite mind-blowing. So I think uh, virtual private servers are absolutely fantastic. And uh, anyway. Yeah. And I mean, the biggest thing that I think that a virtual private server takes advantage of or is a recognition of is that most servers aren't running at full capacity all the time. Yes. Um, that there's a tremendous amount, like most network services are very bursty in terms of their their need. And most often, if you, the simplest way to think about it is most often they're responding to people doing things and people aren't always doing the same thing all the time you know if if you're if, if you're a photo service people are going to be you know log, op, opening it up and downloading their pictures periodically and that that periodic nature i think lends itself to something like a virtual private server making a lot of sense where rather than having a server that's physically that's physically dedicated towards one task you can take that uh, that server and split it up amongst a variety of different purposes and tasks and take advantage of the fact that more likely than not, they're actually not going to be contending with each other very often. That there sometimes that's going to happen, and when that happens, you know, your the virtual software deals with that in a way to make sure that you have a baseline of this is the you know the performance that you can, at the very least, always get. Um, but a lot of times, what you'll end up with is you can actually get better performance than you would have otherwise because if the if the that that base computer is actually fairly idle. You may actually be getting a faster, you know, faster experience than you're paying for because the computer's just sitting there. And so you can take advantage of that in a really cool way with a virtual server. But you have all the simplicity and advantages of, you know, there's no you're not you you have no idea that there's someone else next to you, except for the occasional times of high contention. Typically, you have no idea they're there, and so that makes your experience very simple. But it takes advantage of this and gets you a lot of power for a very a relative a relatively low amount of money you know mm -hmm. some of these machines are that's crazy you're talking about five ten uh, twenty dollars a month for a fairly capable computer attached to a very high bandwidth you know connection like yeah. that's pretty amazing that you can do that um at, at that kind of a price so Absolutely. it's kind of yeah, it, it it blows my mind. It really does blow my mind that 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 it's even possible, and it's all thanks to the the idea of, of virtualizing because it's just driven that cost down. And I'm I am glad you brought that up because the uh, absolutely right, a, a server utilization it's so wasteful having a dedicated server, and if you're only using 10, 15% of it, then that's just yeah. Whereas this way, you get ring more out of it, which is again, it's a, it's a it makes it more economical for everybody. But the first time I heard this uh, idea, and this is something that I come across, uh, um, and at the moment I'm working on a project where we've got quad-redundant servers. Uh, you know, it's an oil and gas application, but anyway, it's a long story. And the quad-redundant servers are actually all virtualized. And all of the server instances these days, that it's becoming more predominant whereby 
we're virtualizing instances of the SCADA software and yeah, it's just it's the way it's going. But uh, we have to be mindful of one problem and that is that if the hardware dies and of course, oh, you know, yeah, you've got redundant power supplies, you've got you know, RAID configuration on your hard, uh, hard drives and yeah, you've got highly reliable components, but you know, failures still happen. So when you do lose a machine, if you've got 12 people using that machine, 12 virtual servers going, all 12 of those are going to get wiped out in one get in one go. Yeah. Now, that sounds really bad because you're like, oh, wow, this is even less, this is much less reliable than before. Why would you even risk that sort of thing? And I suppose from the point of view of you're a single consumer and you are going to host all 12 of your sites on one physical machine, that's probably not a good idea from a reliability point of view. You want to spread that over different machines, even if they're virtual. And, you know, honestly, that's probably obvious. But um, the thing is that if you look at any individual, assume, for example, that all of your 12 instances are spread across different machines. If one went down, the other 11 people on your machine and they're in the same boat, independently, statistically, there's no impact to the reliability overall. So you are the argument is cumulative availability for the total number of users on that machine. So if you lose that machine, sure, 12 people are affected as opposed to one, that's bad. But from any one individual's point of view, if they've thought it through beforehand, there's no difference whatsoever. So that's one of those little funny little conundrums. You sort of think about it and it sort of makes sense. But the initial reaction yeah. is, oh, gee, that's really bad. But it's actually and, not. And what I found in my own experience is the reality of the way the pricing works on a virtual server is such that I can very easily add redundancy in a cost-effective way because they're so inexpensive in the first place. Mm-hmm. For almost everything that I do, there's almost always two, at least you know, at least two versions of that same thing running, and then they're being load balanced and shared between the two. And so, in some ways, that's even better than if I had a computer that one computer that was twice as performant. Mm. That would likely seem more dangerous than having you know two half as capable computers on sitting next to each other and being shared um, but between themselves because I'm isolating myself from at least some levels of a uh, of, of fit you know some levels of failure obviously there's still always problems that you know some guy outside cuts the internet to the data center you know if both your servers are in that data center you're still have a problem and obviously yeah. you can distribute amongst other data centers and so on but i find in general there it's a very reliable way to do this because you're sharing you're split you're spreading it out over such a wide variety of actual physical places that you know, individual failures become much less likely mm-hmm. or much less have have a smaller impact when they happen, maybe, even if it's not really affecting the likelihood. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely right. And that, that's something I just, I wasn't, I wasn't going to actually talk about this, but it's a, I think it, it bears just discussing is the issue of uh, the, with, with respect to redundancy slash load balancing, I think that there's, there's two ways of looking at the problem. There's um, there's sur- surges in load caused by lots of people signing onto a service at any one time or you've got a popular article on your site or something like that and there's a big spike and you, know, you could bring on additional capacity to handle that so that you don't experience a downtime. Uh, the other way to think about it is you're doing it purely for redundancy purposes. So you've got a, a known background static level of, well, not, it's never truly static, but you know, 
and an assumed static level of load. And what you want to do is then distribute that such that if one fails, the other one is capable of taking up the entire load. And obviously, with each additional server that you add, it gets diminished by a proportional amount. So if you've got two, then I would suggest you would provision um, each of them should be capable of handling just a touch under 50% of your expected load as a worst case scenario, such that if one fails, then the other one will not quite hit 100%. And if you add a third one, then it's you know it's just under 33%. If you add a fourth one, it's just under 25%. That, that's the way I'd probably approach it. But you know, from your back from your experience how how have you approached that it's it's along those lines yeah because what what you want to be able to do and this is just a practical reason too is that you want to be able to take any one server down at any like in an ideal world you want to be able to take anything down and have it as as small impact on your end user as possible that's like the number the number one goal that I'm striving towards mm-hmm. is to be able to take a pull pull one thing out and have it not affect anything. And so, with a, you know with web servers or something like that, you want to yeah it's that you want to be able to take one down and have whatever the other ones are handle that level of load. And they may be straining to do that potentially, um, but it happens rare enough. But it's, it's it's an amazing thing on a practical level to be able to if I need to fix something on a server that I can just take it out of rotation. And even if it hasn't failed, but it's just I can take it out of rotation, do some maintenance, and then put it back into rotation, and no one was any the wiser that it just that that just happened. Um, that's a tremendously powerful thing to, on a practical level to be able to do, which lets you prevent a lot of failures down the road in, in terms of being able to do that kind of preventative maintenance ahead of time. Cool. Alrighty. So um, next thing I just wanted to quickly talk about is. Now that we've said how awesome running your own server is, virtual private servers and so on, just want to mention how running a server can be a pain in the neck. Uh, <laughs> so these are wonderful. Oh, by the way, they're a pain in the neck. So because you need to, yeah, because you need to worry about critical patches for vulnerabilities, updates. You've got to check to main, to, to to ensure that the server hasn't crashed and you know, might need a reboot or something. You've got to keep an eye on it. It's kind of like um, it's kind of like a child a little bit. You've, you've got to keep an eye on it at all times, otherwise it's going to get into mischief. Well, well, yes, generally that's yeah. definitely the case with my kids. So, you know, it's just that's a hassle, and a lot of people either don't want to know about that, or they don't know how to deal with that. So, the idea along the way, uh, before virtual private servers were a thing, back when everything was still physical servers, was well, why don't we do a shared hosting kind of an idea? And the shared hosting idea could be done on a virtual private server technically, I suppose, but you know, far more typically on a physical machine. At least that's the way they started out anyway. And user accounts are created on that same machine. So each user gets a slice of the hard drive space. Everyone shares a bit of the CPU time. And essentially, you know, obviously this, this impacts on the performance of the machine, but, you know, it's... It's not a dedicate. It's not your own playground like a virtual private server. Where you could load whatever software you wanted. This is a fixed set of software that they give you access to, and they restrict what you're allowed to do. But honestly, if you've got a lower traffic site, that's generally not a problem. You don't need that extra performance. You don't need that extra configurability. You can just go with something sort of off the shelf, and a hosted plan would do. You know, a hosted setup would probably do you just fine. So. 
uh, bottom line though is though, yeah, and I guess the same is true of any of these virtual private servers or shared machines is that if you've got one high traffic site on it, all the other sites on that machine will suffer. But again, yeah, although that's less of an issue with a virtual server, it's still a concern because everything's going through the same hard drive essentially or SSD, whatever. So the thing with shared hosting though is that, you know, it's the cheapest way you can possibly put something up there. So managing a, a shared hosting account is, is meant to be easy. It's meant to be straightforward. For people that don't know Linux, don't want to know anything about Linux or, you know, or whatever else or how to maintain a server, it's designed specifically for you. And the interface that seems to be most popular is something called cPanel, which is like the letter C and then the word panel, all one word. And I had a little bit of a dig into this. I was curious actually about how old cPanel was because it looks like something out of the 90s. And that's actually because it is out of the 90s. Um, so it was uh, about 1996, apparently. It was created for a web host that's long gone, but it's sort of been adopted by the industry at large. And everywhere seems to use this thing. So I've used uh, Namecheap, Bluehost. There's a few other ones along the way. I've scattered ones I've used. They've all used cPanel. Now, that is not an exhaustive analysis, obviously. Um, and I'm sure there's others out there. In fact, that's a good question. Have you come across other, other ones other than cPanel? Um, I think I've seen probably things that are forks of it. There's a lot of people who will take something like that and then customize it to their own sure. needs and, and desires. But yeah, fundamentally, it's a very similar thing. Yeah. And it does, it does its job very well, which is, you know, takes a lot of the, you know, command line work out of it. And it takes a lot of that specialized knowledge out of it. I mean, you still have to learn something, you know, obviously. If you're going to go to a shared host and you're going to set up a website, you still need to learn cPanel and, you know, what it does and how it works. But it's a lot easier to learn, a lot more self-explanatory, at least well, I think so anyway, than... Um, than diving in with CentOS, for example. Sure. Yeah. I mean, what they're doing is the, in a shared environment, someone else is the responsible individual for that machine. It's no longer you. And if, in technical terms, it's like you're not the root administrator of that computer, more likely than not. And so you are given a very limited, focused, secure, thought-out set of things and commands that you can run and things that you can do on it. And so... You it, like the the odds of you horribly doing something completely wrong are much reduced as a result. That you can you know there's still obviously things you can do that would be unwise, but it's not quite the same as when you're the it, it's your computer that you've set up from top to bottom. That if you forget to do something or you do something wrong, that you can have horrible you know horrible things go wrong. That you accidentally just deleted the entire hard drive or you, whatever. Like yeah, you can yeah. all these things that you can do. Whereas on most of these interfaces, it's like. You can do a lot less, but for if you're just trying to take some files and put them on the internet and let other people view them, it works just as well for something like that. Hmm. Absolutely right, and and because it's cheap, it's very popular. So uh, a lot of people will 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 uh, will start there if they're if they're messing with their own you know ho their own hosted solution, uh, self-hosted solution. So. Before we uh, go on any further and start talking about uh, all the different, uh, some of the different CMSs and advantages and disadvantages, I just want to talk uh, about our sponsor for this episode, uh, ManyTrix. Uh, ManyTrix is a great software development company whose apps do, well, you guessed it, many tricks, like the name suggests. Their apps include Butler, Chemo, Leech, Usher, Witch, Desktop, Curtain, TimeSync, NameAngler, and Moom. There's so much to talk about for each of those apps. What we're going to do is just focus on a different one each week. And this week, uh, it's we're going to talk about Moom. 
That's M-O-O-M. So here's the thing. If you're sick to death of rearranging windows to make space to get your work done, Moom can save you a ton of time. It, it makes it easy to move your window to the exact position on the screen that you want. Top half, bottom half, bottom left corner, fractions of the screen even. You could lock them to the top, the left, the right, whatever you want. Even better than that, it lets you save, uh, have, let's say you've got four or five windows open at the same time. Yeah, you know, I know I do when I'm at work. So I'll have you know, Outlook open, I'll have my day, I'll have a calendar, I'll have, I'll have a whole bunch of different things open. It's always the same set of windows. What you can do is you can save and recall those window layouts quickly and easily using Moom. Not only that, Moom can automatically rearrange and resize your open windows when you add or remove a display. So let's say you've got a laptop, you're going to and from work, you plug it into your, uh, your, your display when you get to work, it can automatically rearrange and resize the windows you have open uh, when you plug in the, new, the, the external display. It's, it's like magic. It really is very, very cool. So the thing is, there's so many little more, you know, some more little tweaks in Moom. It just... It's better if you just go and have a look at it. So I had a play with Moom, and I'll confess, um, for the first time, just in the last week and a bit, and I'm really impressed. If you haven't tried it, download the trial and have a play with Moom yourself. And see what you think. You can download a free trial of Moom from ManyTricks, or one word, .com slash Moom, and try it out. It's available from that page or through the Mac App Store for $10 US. However, if you visit that URL before the 17th of August, you can take advantage of a special discount off of their very helpful apps exclusively for Pragmatic listeners. Simply use Pragmatic25, that's Pragmatic25, in the discount code box in the shopping cart to receive 25% off. This offer is only available to Pragmatic listeners for a limited time, so take advantage of it while you can. Thank you, very big thank you to ManyTricks for sponsoring Pragmatic. So now we've talked about shared hosting, I think it's time we sort of had a had, had a go at uh, content management systems because I think that this builds on top of everything on the on the hardware and the physical. Okay, here's a here's a server, here's a host, here's a how why you would use it and so on. But the thing is that there's a lot of choice out there now, and it's come a long way from just being a bunch of static files written purely in HTML, which is where I started. You know, back in ninety. I think the first web page I did was 95, 94, 95, something like that. It was terrible. It was beyond terrible. And I and I I actually still have the files because I, I'm a digital hoarder and I never throw anything away. Because, um, I mean, it's, it doesn't take up much space. I'll just put it on the hard drive and then I'll just burn that to a Blu-ray disc. And I think, yeah, it got, it was, it's gone from floppy to CD to DVD to Blu-ray. So <laughs> it's been backed up forever. <sighs> Memories. Anyway. So, um, I there are so many out there, it's so hard to know where to start. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to cheat and talk about my own personal experience because, frankly, well, that's just the quickest and easiest. And it gets the point across, I think. So, the, 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 the big option, the elephant in the room of, um, of self-hosted as well as uh, with the option of fully hosted is WordPress. So, have you played much with WordPress? Yeah, I mean, I hosted my a variety of my websites on it for for many years. Yeah, um, I've moved. I've since moved on beyond it. But yeah, it's a it, it's by far it's the probably the de facto standard for setting up a blog or blog like thing on the internet and um, configuring that something where you're going to have some type of episodic content that you create and it publishes and manages the pages for etc. That's mm-hmm. 
exactly. it's built on PHP, I think. And yes. It's just a very simple, it, it's very simple, it's, it's very simple, but very capable is probably the right way to think about it. something like WordPress that it's, it's a fairly general purpose tool, but it does that general purpose very well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and your story is almost exactly the same as mine. And that's where I started as well. So I started with WordPress. So the thing is, uh, WordPress's uh, predecessor was actually called B2 um, Cafe Log. Some people just called it B2 or Cafe Log. Uh, it was written by uh, Mikel Valdrigi. And that was around about 2001-ish. And as you say, it was based on PHP and MySQL. It was forked by... Uh, a uh, guy called uh, Matt Mullenweg and uh, Mike Little in 2003, and that's when it got the name WordPress. So currently, uh, current version, I believe, is 3.9 at time of recording, and it requires PHP 5.2.4 or greater, and MySQL uh, version 5.0 or greater. So those are this little the numbers there if you're interested. But anyway, it is open source, but you can host it at WordPress.com or at any number of compatible shared hosts. And believe me, there's a lot of them. Uh, you can install it on your own server, your own virtual private server, whatever you like. So uh, WordPress.com has a free tier, but if you pay $99 a year, you get more storage, custom domain, more hard drive space, no ads, and so on and so forth. This is not a sales pitch, and no, they are not a sponsor of the show. But just for the sake of completeness, I mentioned that. There's also a business tier. It's got additional themes and so on. The, th- the thing I love about WordPress is the fact that there's a huge number of plugins, themes, lots and lots of people use it. It's, it's I think, uh, I'd love to know the numbers. I don't, I couldn't find the numbers, but surely it's got to be the most popular, um, you know, most popular one in the world of its type. Probably. Uh, probably, yeah. yeah. I don't have the numbers to back that up, but in any case, it's very, very popular. And what that leads to is that leads to there's a lot of support for it. So if you've got a question you could about anything to do with WordPress, you can Google it and you'll pretty much get an answer. And in fact, you'll probably get a dozen or two dozen answers and some of which might be conflicting. But at least the truth will be in one of them, probably. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so that's great. Whereas if it's a more obscure platform, you're kind of stuck figuring it out for yourself for the most part, which, you know, is something that I faced a little bit um, when I've been playing with Statomic. But uh, that's okay. Generally, it was my fault. When I, when I was doing something wrong, I just didn't realize I was doing something wrong. But anyway, so, okay. The thing that attracts a lot of people to WordPress is it's got a nice little web-based user interface, front end. And it also has iOS and Android native apps as well so that you can, you know, modify posts and, and so on and tweak different things uh, when you're out and about. And that's great because it means that, yeah, the most common platforms being a web browser and um, the two most popular smartphone platforms, you're, you're, you're catered for which is really, really great. And it all just, you know, plugs into wherever you're, wherever you're hosted, whatever website you're hosting it on, wherever, wherever that may be. So WordPress is a dynamic content management system. So I'll talk about CMSs a lot, you know, CMS content management system, in case I haven't already um, told you what that acronym was, in case you didn't know that. But anyway, it's a dynamic CMS. So that is when you request a specific URL, the PHP will construct a page dynamically and it pulls data from the themes, from MySQL, from the actual, the text of the individual um, entries in, in, in MySQL. And it then presents a finished set of HTML, CSS, JavaScript files to the browser for display, essentially. that it, it, They're dynamically generated. So that means that every page load, the server's doing a, a certain amount of processing 
as well as serving the final files to the browser. And you may say to yourself, well, okay, what's the big deal? I mean, the big deal is that at a certain point, uh, that can become an issue if you've got a lot of requests coming in. So that can slow you down sometimes, in some cases. Now, I used WordPress for about three years, and I even set up a company website using it. And honestly, it is pretty solid, but at the same time, it can be annoying to customize it because I've customized a few different things that then interfered with certain other plugins. And if the whole point of WordPress is to make it easy, then customizing is perhaps not the point. Customizing up to a certain point is okay, but if you're starting to get in there and you're tweaking uh, PHP and different things, and even tweaking CSS, I found plugins would conflict sometimes with changes I made. Have you seen those scratching your head saying, hang on a minute, I, I updated that. Why isn't that being reflected on, on the site? I don't get it, you know, and it turned out to be a, a conflict with a plugin. And, you know, so you, you end up getting to this point where, it's a great place to start, but once you want to optimize it, if you're, and if your blog becomes more popular, then you know it's at what point do you sort of like say, okay, well, I've sort of outgrown WordPress. So anyway, okay, so there are ways you can optimize and I found a great, uh, well, there's a lot of great articles, but I found one I've linked to in the show notes called the WordPress Optimization Bible. And it gives you a whole bunch of, uh, not a religious document. Uh, it gives you a whole bunch of, ideas as to how you can essentially uh what's the word optimize <laughs> jeez that's like that um thing in english where they say describe the word optimize without using optimize in your description of the word optimize yeah uh, anyway so you can tune your performance oh, thank you yes that, that's exactly what i meant so there you go and uh caching is the obvious one and there's wordpress uh, the the most popular plugin historically is uh wordpress uh super cache uh, there's actually a newer one out I've heard that's uh, that's a lot better and uh, or it's making inroads and becoming more popular. And it pre-generates the pages for you. So it essentially becomes a, uh, it uses the dynamic only when you first generate the page and after that it's fully static. So that reduces the amount of server load every time you get a request. Uh, there's also other things you can do, like for example, turning off, uh, <laughs> turning off all the backups. Because one of the things is every time you hit save draft on an entry in WordPress, it saves an entry in MySQL in the database. And the database becomes this massive, huge bloated thing. You use it for a couple of years and you, you put out a, you know, a couple of posts a day, that thing gets enormous. And uh, it's full of drafts. It's like 95% drafts, depending upon if you've got an itchy you know, left, left um, mouse button and you're always hitting save. Yeah. Force of habit for us you know, to geeks, right? Oh, yeah, sure. Never trust autosave ever. So, Never. <laughs> anyway. Okay, so not too much else I want to say about WordPress specifically. But what I do want to talk about is on a shared host, they have this, uh, almost all of them that I've, in fact, all of them that I've used, and I imagine almost all of them, have this thing called Softaculous. Have you come across that? I don't think so. Okay. Well, Softaculous is essentially an, a set of auto-installer auto scripts for the most common platforms, including WordPress. But they've also got Joomla, Drupal, um, and those just come to mind. Yeah. Some have movable type, you know, whatever. They've got lots and lots of them. And the idea is you don't have to upload anything with a with an FTP you know, client or anything like that. You simply just double-click on this thing and it guides you through, okay, what do you want to call your site? Mm -hmm. um, what username are you going to have for, you know, your entry? Okay, my entry, my... my uh, my name will be John Chigi. Okay, that's easy. 
Um, and uh, honestly, yeah, it generates it all for you, sets it all up for you. All you got to do then is log into the website, web, the web page front end and, and start working. So it really, they make it as easy as possible. And there's a link to um, Softaculous in the, in the show notes and uh, just if, if you're interested. So run a script and then go. No further setup required. That's the idea and it works pretty well. So I've used that multiple times and uh, I've done it the harder way as well. But I create a directory and uploaded the files and done the install that way, which is really not that much harder, but still, you know, it's, it's a bridge that some people don't want to cross, I suppose. Anyway. Sure. It requires that you know a much, have a much deeper understanding of things. Yeah. It's, it's not necessarily more difficult, but you have to actually know what's going on rather than just it being fine with, I push a button and then the the website appears. Yeah. You don't need to actually know that. Well, you're creating a file and in that, in that folder, you're putting a variety of different PHP files that are being run and based on which path you're accessing on the site, et cetera. Like you just don't have to know that. Exactly. And it's just a little icon at the bottom of your C panel, you know, softaculous installers, away you go. And you simply go there and select the one you want. And you don't have to worry about any of that other stuff, which is, you know, for a lot of people is just what they want. So anyway, okay. Um, now I did mention, uh, I did mention Statomic and we'll, we'll talk a little bit briefly about that later, but sometimes people don't even want to deal with signing up with a host. You know, the, like, so let, let, let's say, because th that path would be, I don't want to go on WordPress.com for whatever reason. I, let, let's say I'm trying to save the maximum amount of money possible. The cheapest way to do it, let's say, and I want to have uh, my own self-hosted solution so I have more control of the fact that I can choose to take my site wherever I want. So I don't want to be locked into WordPress.com. I could just go wherever I want. So I'm going to sign up with Namecheap or Bluehost or, and those that, you know, some that I've used or wherever. And I'm going to use their shared hosting and I'm going to install WordPress and I'm going to do what I want to do my way. Well, some people don't want to deal with that. And they're perfectly happy to let go of another layer of control and say, you know what, I'm just going to go to one provider that does everything. And that could just be WordPress.com. However, um, you know, there's other ones like, uh, like Blogger, Tumblr, and Squarespace we'll just talk about in just a second. So those sites are designed such that you, you log in, you create your site, and away you go. You, you, don't, you don't have anything else to set up except to create content. And that perhaps is the most abstracted and ideal way for as an entry level for people that are trying to get into you know, producing content for the web. So you don't even have to think about the machines or virtual anythings, which is great. Well, it's great. It's a great, great place to start. And a lot of people still do it even after they've been doing it for years because it just takes that complexity and stress out of it. So, okay, let's just talk about Blogger then quickly. So uh, it was mid-1999, so not quite in the 2000s yet, and uh, Pyrolabs created this thing that they called you know, Blogger, but it only really became popular in 2003. Well, I'd never heard of it before then. I, I think it only really became popular in 2003 when Google bought it. It wasn't technically my first website, but it was the first blog that I'd done in recent times, and that was for me in 2008 was using Blogger. And I found that it was very simplistic, um, but, you know, okay, look, it's very simple to use. Anyone with a Google account can create one. It's free. It's fully hosted. Yeah, but on the downside, it's difficult to customize it. And that's kind of, I guess, the, not really the point, though, is that it's not designed to be customized. It's designed to be a simple starting point with a web interface uh, and no hassle. Have you ever used Blogger? I, th I feel like somewhere deep 
deep back in my past I have, but I, I think I'm enough of a control freak that I very quickly moved on to, to something that was a, gave me a bit more uh, mm. control over what I was doing. But yeah, I've used I've, I've definitely used things like it where it's that type of it's designed so that anybody can set up a blog. You just give it an you just you give it a name and you just start writing. Yeah, and it takes care of everything else. That's it. Hey, you're a fellow control freak. High five. There you go. Uh, anyway, um, that's totally a good thing. Okay, so um, next one I just want to touch on briefly uh, is Tumblr. And that was began in 2006, I think it was, um, with a mutual, um, a mutual acquaintance, uh, Marco Arment, uh, and also David Karp, of course. Uh, last year, that was bought by Yahoo for $1.1 billion, I think it was. I think that's right. Something like that. Yeah. I mean, did Marco sell out too soon? That's the question <laughs> on everybody's lips. But anyway, uh, it's like Blogger. And I say it's like Blogger rather loosely. And Marco is probably screaming right now as he's listening to this. But it's uh, kind of the next evolution. Uh, it has a lot more features and uh, and themes and following and reblogging other people's posts. So it, it creates more of a community feel to it than Blogger seems to. Whether or not that's... You know, that's just that's just my sense anyway, is that uh, I, th I find Tumblr to just be a far more attractive, um, u u usable, nicer product than something like Blogger. Blogger is just like, you know, typical Google. It's like cut back to the bones, bare minimum. You know, this is what you need to do your thing. That's it. Not much from the way of flourish. And that's okay. So anyway. Yeah. But the great thing, of course, about both of those options is that they're free. They're not going to cost you a cent. Mind you, the site owns you or your content lives there. If that site goes down, then you're kind of screwed and you can't, you know, you, I think you can export information. Uh, I, I Probably, yeah. I, I mean, Tumblr, but most of these things have some type of give me all my stuff. But the question then, of course, becomes, well, what do I do with all my stuff? Yeah, exactly. Because you, you have to work out a way of somehow translating that into somewhere else or uh, finding yeah. another something that can import that data into a usable format or who knows. But yes, like you're you're definitely you're giving up a lot of be, a, a lot of control for lack of a better word of your of, of your content that you're very much at the whims of them and their services, their their policies. You know, if they they change their policies, that could affect you in ways that you don't really have anything to you can't really do anything about. Yeah, exactly right. And uh, the the point about being able to export data, I remembering now actually with Blogger that at the time I don't know if that's changed, but certainly at the time years and years ago when I when I was leaving Blogger and then I went to WordPress, is I ended up just copying and pasting everything um, manually like via the web page because it was just easier. Sure. <laughs> you know, which is to, uh, which was great because I only had something like eight or nine articles that I'd done over a year. It was you know less than a hobby. It was uh, it yeah. was less than a part-time of a part-time hobby at that point. But, you know, honestly, if I had vast volumes of blog posts, that would have been agony. And when I went from WordPress to Statomic, it was easier, but I still had to write a bunch of scripts to clean things up. And even then, I had to go through and manually check all, like, I think it was up to 200 posts at that point. I had to go through and manually check each and every one. And every now and then, in the back, back catalog, I still occasionally, when I reference a... Uh, a site will come across a stray underscore, <laughs> underscore, uh, lying around. Yeah. Oh, sure. And it, it's anytime you move from something like that, it, it, that's always going to be the case because they're, 
you're you're not starting you're not storing your your blog you're not storing your articles in a way that is designed to be tra- transferable that's designed to be kind of a common language that everything else can speak it's you know you're putting it into their system and it's optimized for the way they store they do things and the way they store data and so I think this is where we're about to head. Like, you, would you, and a lot of people, what you end up wanting to do is to take your data and instead and store it in some kind of more common format, so that you're not no longer tied into anybody specifically. So that exporting and importing is kind of trivial. That's the, probably in some ways the ideal goal. Yeah, exactly. So uh, the next one to talk about just briefly, and then we're not going to talk too much more about CMSs because uh, this is not meant to be the CMS comparison show whereby you pick the best CMS ever made because I'm pretty sure that's an argument that no one can ever win. So we're going to go with uh, Squarespace. And no, they are not a sponsor of this particular episode, although they have sponsored the show in the past back when I, when I was at, uh, at Fiat Lux. But anyhow. So it's a lot more advanced and in many ways more flexible and more configurable but it also costs it's eight dollars a month that's if you sign up for a year and it has a nice drag and drop style of uh, interface but the great thing is you can also modify and tweak a lot of the underlying uh, code you can inject different bits and pieces and a lot of people a lot of geeks use squarespace and because you know well they like it and um, there's a lot of, uh, I hate to call them hacks, but essentially they are in order to get certain functionality to, to work. But the point is that there is a, a reasonable support base of people and, and solutions out there. It's one of those uh, dig as deep as you dare kinds of solutions. Like it's got all the benefits of being a fully hosted, fully self-contained solution, but it also has a lot more, it's a lot more extensible, uh, is that the right word? Um, you can dig deeper anyway and play with it uh, more so than you can with Tumblr and Blogger, which you pretty much can't mess with uh, beyond their th- theme appearances and so on. So um, I, you have a, a few sites on Squarespace, I think. Is that right? Um, no. No. I've, I've, I've never... I, I've created an account there to see how it works, but I've never actually hosted anything on it. I had a site there um, for about three months and... Uh, I just decided to transition it and uh, I, I was on WordPress at the time. I wanted to have a play with it to see if it was for me. Turned out that it wasn't for me. And I, you know, honestly, I actually think Squarespace is wonderful. But at the same time, I was, um, I was sort of at the point where I was more of a control freak and had re- recognized the fact that I wanted to have more control of what I was doing and... Squarespace was um, more, it had, okay, here's uh, just real quickly. It had better uptime than my shared host did at the time. So it was more reliable, uh, but it just didn't, uh, it just, it just clipped my, clipped my wings a little bit too much. And had I dug deeper, I probably could have figured out how to do what I wanted to do, but I found out how to do it in WordPress. So I just, you know, stuck with WordPress. Yeah. Well, and with any of these types of solutions, what you're doing is, it, it, it those they're designed to very elegantly and completely solve a very typically a fairly specific problem domain or whatever it is like if you're trying to do what it's designed to do it'll be amazing and fluid and great mm. as soon as you start to step off that path and you start trying to do things that it's not designed to do is you'll it's often possible 
but it becomes increasingly more difficult and it becomes increasingly less worthwhile because the the whole point of something like that is that you don't have to worry about all these things. And so if you're hacking it up in some way that you're still worrying about it, it's usually end up being wiser to just take your step to, you know, step over into something that is actually designed to have that flexibility in the first place. Hmm. Absolutely right. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So the last thing I want to talk about um, before we get into a, a bit of a go back over and review what we talked about is this phenomenon that I'm seeing from time to time about people that roll their own CMS. And sure, it's I find it to be uh, interesting because the vast majority of people who are doing uh, this sort of thing that want to actually put create content and put it out there, they're just they're just not going to do their own. I mean, they're just not in the same way that you're not going to build your own server in your own temperature controlled, humidity controlled room in your house with multiple power supplies coming in from different power sources, a diesel generator out the back, you know, multiple internet connections coming in. You are equally not going to go to that extent of rolling your own CMS because, you know, you've got WordPress have got dozens if not hundred people working for them I actually don't know the number but i imagine they've got a reasonable number of people working from them they've got a code base that goes back over a decade you know they've got a large testing environment they're doing development all the time wordpress sites are being attempted to be hacked into by hundreds of people all around the world at the moment and all of those attacks are, are forcing them to improve and strengthen what they've done you're getting denial of service attacks that are essentially helping them to streamline the PHP and make it more, you know, more efficient. Yeah, you just I just keep thinking to myself, why would you roll your own? Apart from the fact that it's like, well, gee, it's Sunday afternoon, I'm bored. Let's roll my own CMS. Sure. And and the most recent example is I just want to mention briefly is uh, uh, Casey Liss's uh, Camel, and it's based on Node.js, and he rolled that recently himself, and. Uh, of course, he was on the show recently as well, talking about military software. But it was um, when he said he'd done it, I just sort of like shook my head. I'm like, "What? You did? You did what now?" So uh, anyway, I had a quick look at it, and um, yeah, it, it's interesting. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I sort of say that, and with with, with my, my tongue in cheek a little bit. But the truth is that John Gruber's been running Daring, Daring Fireball off a modified version of Movable Type, and. You know, once you start modifying things, is it the same as rolling your own? I don't know, but it, it takes you off of that upgrade path. So if I go and modify WordPress too much I, and and hack into it, like this is inevitably what I ended up doing. It's not as bad as rolling my own from a point of view of testability and, and you know, stability and reliability and maintainability and all those ability words. Um, it's more about the fact that I've deviated from uh, the standard setup such that if I then upgrade, how much of my stuff will break because they're going to upgrade the, the core functionality. So WordPress, you know, 3.10 comes out or 4.0 comes out and suddenly all of my tweaks and hacks don't work anymore. So then I'm stuck. And I kind of get the feeling that either you're in it or you're not. If you're going to actually going to roll your own, you have complete control, complete ownership. But if you're going to start modifying an existing mainstream one, you're kind of sort of rolling it a little bit yourself because you're then locking yourself into the mods that you've made without perhaps intending to, if that makes sense. Yeah. So honestly, I think that there's a balance and a lot of people do it, I think just for 
you know, and I hate this expression, but that's why I use it because I hate it, is geek cred. It's like, sure. hey, look at my geek cred, man. I rolled my own. It's like, well, okay, cool. That's great. Cool bananas. Love it. Yeah. But um, honestly, is it really going to be as solid, as reliable, as maintainable as something that you're going to get from WordPress, Statamic, Drupal, Joomla? You know, list goes on forever and it literally does go on forever. There's that many of them. Then I would suggest perhaps not. But yeah, yeah. I mean, what I've where I've ended up settling myself is kind of in the middle there. So I use mm. something called uh, it's it's a Ruby it's a Ruby static uh, site generator called Jekyll. Yep, yep. No. Um, which I mean, because ultimately what I ended up wanting to do and my motivation for going this direction is that it's sort of to the thing that I was uh, alluding to earlier, where I wanted my content that I'm creating to have. Longevity, longevity beyond just whatever platform I'm currently hosting it on. And so what I like about something like this is my blog and every word I've ever written on it is essentially just a folder of markdown files. Um, and that's all it is. And then I just have a potentially a bunch of scripts over that take that and transform it into my website whenever I do an update. And the great thing about that is if I really want, if I wanted to ship, shift from one to the well you know, from one system to another if i wanted to roll my own if i wanted to adapt someone else's own rolled solution almost you know it's a fair it's a very transferable non maybe proprietary is not quite the right word but sort of um it's, it's a very non-proprietary approach for storing that information and so it lets you gives you that tremendous flexibility and sort of peace of mind that in 10 years, if I want to still have that content available in whatever form, I'm not sure if it would be relevant, but if I did, I don't have to deal with deal with kind of the questions in my back of my mind of like, well, how would I get it out? How would I keep it moving forward with the state of the art? And so it's kind of exporting it to something that's very basic, very simple, that I can then just, you know, re reliably move forward as technology advances. Mm-hmm. It's a very good point, and it's something that uh, I was a guest on a Pocket Size podcast episode. I think it was 160, and we talked a lot about uh, Markdown and, and the advantages and disadvantages of it. And the data longevity and that flexibility is where it wins because you know, Markdown is essentially, well, I say it's a standard, the original Markdown standard, of course, you know, has been extended with multi-markdown and there's a whole bunch of different flavors of markdown with different functionality. But essentially, you know, it's a bunch of text files that don't take up much space, that essentially are cross-platform and, you know, are very likely to be easy to import or with a, a bit of scripting are easy to import into whatever CMS of, uh, of, of the future ends up being whatever it ends up being. And it's easy to transport between them. So you know, you're using um, uh, Jekyll, for example, I'm using Statomic. And Statomic is exactly the same thing. Is It's based on markdown files. So I could easily take my markdown files and build a site in Jekyll if I so desired. And it's that flexibility, or vice versa, you could come across to Statomic. But you know, either way, and, and there's dozens and dozens of other examples. So yeah, absolutely, that's... And I haven't really talked about this uh, about Statomic is that I I went Statomic and what Statomic is is it's a uh, it, it's a static slash dynamic site uh, generator of of sorts and what it does is the first request it, it generates stat set of static files and then from that point in time you're working entirely from the cache and it has uh, no database 
However, it acts like a database. So you build information into the markdown files, into the uh, YAML headers, for example, and then you can reference it uh, using a set of uh, using a set of uh, variable tags and uh, different uh, functions, and it'll actually scan through them uh, as the page is generated, uh, as though it was a database. So it's it's kind of cool, actually. Uh, it's a flat file CMS. It has very very good performance, just like Jekyll does, and Honestly, uh, yeah, I quite, I quite like it, but at the same time, it's required a lot of learning on my part. And this is kind of where I wanted to circle back to is is the learning piece. So there's there's, there's really a couple of ways of uh, of looking at which is the right way to go for me and for for my particular use case because you know uh, the running gag seems to be only my use case matters. Well, obviously, you know that's meant to be uh, a joke. Because the truth is that everyone's use case is subtly different. So if you're going to do this sort of thing, what's the way to look at it? And I think there's really two ways to look at it. There's how much time do you actually have available to be messing around with the platform that you want to use? And if you don't have much time, so if you're if you're time poor, as they say, then you know, obviously a, a solution that is out of the box is far more appropriate to your needs. And the next, oh, actually, you know what? I just, I've written down too, but there's really a third one. So the, the second one is the popularity. And if you're running a site that gets a few hundred hits a day, not massive traffic, uh, then, you know, hey, you can get away with just running WordPress, stock standard, no problem. However, if you start getting high volume traffic, you may start having issues depending upon where it's hosted and how it's set up. And of course, that requires more knowledge with caching and so on and so forth. Different CMSs will perform differently. So obviously, that will also partly drive you know, what you need to do. But the bottom, the, the, the consensus seems to be you want to go static because static or a static-based system will give you the best performance. And certainly, I'm imagining, well, Confirm, deny. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the 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 volume that you can serve from a static system is immense. Yeah, uh, certainly above above what you'd ever have to worry about. Yeah, exactly. So, if if it's a smaller site, you can get away with uh, with fully dynamically generated um, CMSs, but you know, static is the preferred option if you want to go high volume. So. And then the third and final uh, thing that should determine which way you choose to go is essentially your technical ability. And that is such an intangible thing because I'm a great believer that anyone can learn anything if they put their mind to it and if they're interested in learning it. And I never accept the fact that so that people are just not like technically inclined. I don't, I don't accept that. I believe that anyone can learn anything if they really want to. And frankly... I realize I just repeated myself as a method of trying to prove my point by repeating myself, which is actually not a valid way of proving a point. But anyhow, okay. Um, what was I saying? I sidetracked myself. Right, you're, yes. You're, you're, <laughs> yes, that anyone can learn anything. It's it's certainly not a barrier. Not having, not knowing how to administer a Linux server is certainly no, is, is only superficially a good reason to not learn to administer a, a Linux server or whatever yes. you'd apply that to. That's right. That... It, it may, may be valid in the short term, but in the long term, if it's something that you actually would benefit from use from knowing and understanding how it works, then you certainly can. That's not something that should stand in the way of you 
Africa, considering something as an option. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with Google, the way that search engines have be- have have become so uh, accurate. And you know, I'm thinking back to the days of of you know the original Yahoo and Excite and oh dear, you know, uh, all of those older search engines which were by comparison rubbish. And you know, obviously Yahoo's come a long way, and uh, it's a lot better now. And Bing is passable. DuckDuckGo is excellent. Google's excellent. Uh, in terms of its search capability. Yeah, you can put a question out there. How do I do blah in CentOS 6? And you will get a hundred responses. And that's exactly how I learned how to... Because uh, I actually got CentOS 6 on my DigitalOcean uh, droplet, my virtual private server that I run Tech Distortion on. And I've, I've learned how to, you know, set that up in the last, what, eight, nine months? Just through Google searching. Um, there was one point where uh, Ben Alexander taught me a, a trick about how to uh, uh, how to get the tail end of a log file that was very helpful. Thank you, Ben. And uh, but apart from that, it's almost exclusively been Google. And frankly, yeah, I mean, you can learn this stuff if you want to. So, uh, and, and probably one thing to say is, I would encourage. I think anybody who's thinking about it, it, it is easier than it is perhaps than it seems superficially. That at least in my experience, maybe it's just maybe that's easy for me to say, being a, <laughs> a, a nerdy tech guy. But mm. is that a lot of these skills just build on themselves, and you only need to know as much as you need to know yeah. as you go. And so the way I started off being being able to learn, for example, to administer a Linux server is I there are a few basic things that I needed to do, like how do I a- upload a file? Okay, well let's look up uploading a file. Okay, how, okay, I've done that. And then now that's just a tool in your tool belt. The next time you go and like, okay, I need to upload a file and edit it. Okay, well, I do what I did before and then I'll learn how to edit. And it builds on itself in a very iterative way that means that over time, you know, I've been doing this now for probably 10, 15 years. Like I know now how to do a huge, a huge array of things that if I had originally set out to try and learn at the beginning would have been very, very insurmountable. But it just builds up over time in a way that is much more approachable. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Absolutely. And it comes down to uh, that incremental learning is you look at, you look out the ocean and I think the expression is trying to boil the ocean and it looks also hard, but what you do yeah. is you do one, one drop at a time and you, uh, you chip away at it. And what I like, one of my experience has been, I started out with Blogger, which was, you know, completely hosted. Then I moved to WordPress, which was self-hosted. And I started out doing the uh, Softacular script to install it. And then I moved to FTP. Then I started tweaking the CSS because I wanted to customize the appearance. And so I learned more about CM- C- CSS. Then I learned about JavaScript. Then I learned about PHP. And then I'm like, ah, oh, you know what? I could, I should really do because my traffic was getting more volume at that point. So it was like, oh yeah, I should go to a static system. So, and I was getting, I was just getting annoyed with uh, WordPress at that point. I had so many plugins and so much cruft in there. It was frustrating me. Uh, I was breaking things when I was tweaking stuff. So anyway, so then I went to Statomic and a virtual private server, but that required more knowledge of PHP. I thought I knew a little bit of PHP. There's a lot to learn. And I thought, you know, I knew a lot about CSS, but I, I need to learn more. And of course, I had, okay, well, I'm going to install CentOS. Why? Well, someone said CentOS was good, so let's just have a go at CentOS. Fine. So I did that. And then, of course, I'm learning about how to install um, the latest version of PHP using Yum and all these different things that I'd never known before. And now I'm, 
you know, at a point where I'm running a virtual private server with Statomic that's been heavily modified. And um, yeah, it's, uh, I look back at where I've come from and it's, it's quite incredible really because I had none of that knowledge five years ago. And none of, it's all self-taught pretty much. It's not, it's not something that I've gone and done a course for. And, and hence, I don't describe myself as a web, web developer or a web programmer or a web anything. I just describe myself as a hacker when it comes to this stuff anyway. Sure. But that's, that's all you need to be. I mean, that's, yeah, I think and so. the, major, the reality is I think most people I know, that's, that's where they are too. Like yeah. it's, these things are, are accessible, at least at some level enough that you can just do that and, you know, get away with it. And the reality is if it's, it's from, especially for most of these things that aren't necessarily your day job that are putting tremendous pressures on, if something goes wrong, you, you, you know, you mess something up, it's like, okay, well, that was a learning experience. And then you just move on to the next a try yeah absolutely right so with the three things that i mentioned there's another thing that's come up time and again in this conversation and that is control and being control freaks that you and i are both self-confessed yeah. control freaks um, yes maybe i should do like a, a, a we should do i should do a show called control freaks are anonymous or something like that i don't know but yeah, never mind uh, okay so here's the thing ownership and control of the platform as well as the content team tends to drive a lot of people to move away from fully hosted to self-hosted solutions with static files because that control gives us the sense the feeling of control is what we desire is what we seek and we think of all of the advantages and oh it'd be great if i had this and i had that and then in future then i could this would be easier we we talked about this and Honestly, if you're if if what you're doing is just for for fun, you know, like or as a, as a hobby, it's not a serious thing. And on and I look at I look at tech distortion, and I think to myself, well, you know, I would define that as a hobby. I really don't make I, I make enough from the ads on there. Uh, I've got fusion ads on there. That's it. I make enough from that to cover my hosting costs, pretty much. You know. Yeah. So that's it, you know. So it's a, it's in terms of cost, and, and this is the other thing is okay. Hobbies don't have to make money. Yes, I know they don't have to make money because it's a hobby. So you put money into a hobby, and you have enjoyment from your hobby. I get that concept, but at the same time, it's not a job insofar as I'm not drawing an income from this. Therefore, you're going to ask yourself, well, would it really matter if it went away? And if it didn't matter, if it doesn't matter if it went away, then I would argue that the desire and the this the the control for which the you may seek is somewhat unnecessary because well it's just a hobby and there's multiple ways of backing up what you've got if you're thinking about it from a professional point of view like you know, you know with with feed wrangler and pod wrangler the, the all of the stuff that you've created is a business that's a completely yeah. different story but sure. for the majority of people that are listening to this, they're not thinking about the business point of view. They're thinking about this as a hobby point of view. And I guess I just think it's important that, that people sort of get their head around the fact that the need for control often is a justification for itself rather than actually a, a, a requirement. So, yeah. And it's also probably good to say it's a slightly uh, orthogonal discussion, but the so often in my, I know from my own experience, I will create things for me to do and fuss with, 
um, as a way to avoid the task that I'm ostensibly trying to do that fuss to accomplish. Mm. Um, so in, in the case of something like blogging, for example, it's like you can endlessly go around and around with tweaking your site um, in some ways to avoid having to write articles for it. Yeah. Um, or you can f- worry about your mic setup and the software you're using to edit it, et cetera, and actually never ever record a podcast. Like at its core, that's, I think, something that's also just important to think about with a lot of these is if your goal is to create something, if your goal is to, you know, start, start a blog so you can put, you have thoughts in your head that you want the world to know, it, in some ways it doesn't matter too much, at least, at, the, at least from the beginning, to how you're getting that out there and making sure that if, if you're if you're getting you can get too you know down in the weeds about how you're going to do it and the different ways and all the different ins and outs when really you could you you could just in some ways you could just post test you know put it put you know to copy paste out of a text file into something and publish it like it'd be fine and so that's something that also that I, I know for myself that I always have to be on the lookout for is that I'm not being focused too much on taking taking over control of all these different parts of things and giving myself busy work to do because that allows me to feel like I'm doing something but I'm not actually yeah I I feel like we just stepped into a back to work episode there but you know what um that's that's awesome because I'm 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 smiling I'm nodding I do exactly the same damn thing and you got to stop yourself sometimes and say well do i really 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 need to tweak the you know this 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 little bit here i should really just finish typing this and get this out <laughs> but um yeah anyway all right so um okay so control wrapping up on control so if you self-host you're in you've got a little bit more control but that control comes at a cost you need to maintain it yourself um, you need to make sure you've got the latest versions of, let's say, you know, WordPress updates and so on and so forth. And if you're using a lot of plugins and there's a lot of hassle of updating that stuff, you know, and honestly, uh, yeah. So then, then you think to yourself, well, I'm going to, you know, do my own. I'm going to have a, a, a flat file CMS and it's going to be a lot easier. I'm going to actually uh, have that control now. And then I'm going to say, well, no, actually, I don't trust these these cloud host people, you know, they're just not trustworthy or something. So I'm going to have my own physical server at home, you know, in a community control environment with a UPS and diesel generator and blah, 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 blah. And yeah, it's just companies that that do that sort of thing. They have rock solid reliability or they're designed to, and they have high internet availabilities. They have enormous budgets. You're never going to beat that. At some point, you have to give over some aspect of your control and everyone draws a line at a different, a different point. You know, for you and me, we've drawn our line at the virtual private server or the, you know, the server hosted just the, um, our own server in the cloud. We've given up with, we've given up on shared hosts. I think both of us, is that right? I think so. Yeah. I, I, you got thirty. I have too many. I got too many things to keep track of, but (laughs) I don't think anything that's important is hosted on a shared environment anymore. Okay. Hopefully, hopefully that's true, and the person whose site is on there, and you're like, I didn't mean your site in a bad way. Yeah. No. No. Anyway, it's all good. Um. Yeah. So we've all we've gone away from that because that's where you and I we sort of that's where we've drawn our line, and we're prepared to handle that abstraction and that level of control. We surrender. That's fine. But the rest of it. Yeah, the rest of it is is and and you've, using Jekyll's. I thought I would suggest uh, being Ruby based. 
I mean, it's it, in many. It has a lot in common with sta- some of the aspects of Statomic, but I would say it's closer to the metal than Statomic is. Sure. And um, so you've probably gone just a, a, a little bit closer to the metal there, which is what I yeah. would. Well, to be honest. Yeah. Well, because it allows me to. Like, I'm a I'm a Ruby programmer, so I can do anything yeah. I could want. If if it's not doing something I want, I can I can ever do anything because it's just a set of it's just, it's just a set of scripts at the end of the day. Yeah, I always found you know, the problem with Ruby is eventually it goes off the rails, and um, yeah. oh, sorry, that is such a bad joke. I can't. I'm sorry. Okay, <laughs> <clears throat> moving on. Actually, <laughs> I think that's almost all I had. So, um, uh, how how would uh, I, I want to avoid? Here's what I want to avoid at the end of this, this wrapping up is this is what you should do. You know what? I just, sure. I don't want to say that. And the reason I don't is because there are so many different people's ways of attacking this, ways of looking at this, that I don't think that's fair for me to say, well, this is the right thing that you should do. What I do think people should do is have a good hard think about what they're actually trying to accomplish and decide based on that and what and, and be honest about your technical capability and see how far you can push it. Because some of this is fun if you want to get out there and do it. But if you're spending more time maintaining, developing and tweaking a site rather than actually producing content, I would suggest you're probably doing it wrong. And perhaps yeah. that's the part, the, the parting piece of advice I'd le- I'd like to leave. Yeah, and I think that that's exactly right. I think it's one of the, we're spoiled for choice in the sort of in the current environment where we can do anything at any level at, at some ways. And you just are very, you're always just balancing trade-offs. You're balancing your time, your money, um, the complexity of what it is, the portability of whatever it is, and there's a lot of trade-offs that you can make. But if you're, I think, if you're honest about what it is you're trying to accomplish and what it is you're capable of or uh, are desirous of learning about, then you know you can make the decision that makes the most sense for you um, for where in that where in that stack you're going to be at uh, at any one time. Excellent. Very good. Well. If you want to talk more about this, um, you can reach me on Twitter at John Chigi. That's J-O-H-N-C-H-I-D-G-E-Y. And uh, check out my writing at techdistortion.com. If you'd like to send any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website. And that's uh, where you'll also find the show notes for this episode under podcasts Pragmatic. You can follow Pragmatic Show on Twitter to see show announcements and other related stuff. Uh, I'd also like to thank my guest host, David Smith. And what is the best way for people to get in touch with you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at underscore David Smith or at my website, uh, developingperspective.com. And also um, your 15-minute long podcast, Developing yes, Perspective. Yes, is also hosted there as well. Absolute must listen. If you can't find 15 minutes to listen to that each week, there's something wrong with you. Uh, that's probably a bit mean. But no, strongly encourage, please listen to that. I'd also like to thank Many Tricks for sponsoring the show today. If you're looking for some Mac software that can do many tricks, remember to specifically visit this URL, manytricks, all one word, dot com slash pragmatic for more information about their amazingly useful apps and use a discount code pragmatic25 for 25% off the total price of your order. And hurry, it is only for a limited time, so get in while you can. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, thanks again, Dave. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Anytime.
One thing I just I just thought it was a bit amusing that so in the middle of that episode, I got a notification from Linode saying we're have we have a hardware issue on one of your nodes. Oh god! And then three minutes later, we've resolved the issue and re- restarted your computer. And then I get the notification that everything's back up and running. <laughs> just made me laugh that you know while 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 we're in the middle of talking about it, one of my, one of my machines had a a brief hardware glitched that, that you know that my host then immediately resolved and. Everything's now back up and happy three minutes later. But just made me laugh. That's brilliant. <laughs> just while we're, while we're talking about it. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're off, Linode's off doing their job. That's brilliant. 